What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. February 26, 1979, was the worst day of Chuck Cleaver's life. Just after midnight, he was woken up by a phone call. His 14-year-old daughter, Devereaux, was missing. The girl had been in a rafting accident while on vacation in Hawaii. Reeling from the news, Chuck jumped on the first flight to Honolulu. Bleary-eyed from grief and exhaustion, he rushed to the hospital where Sandy was recovering. Chuck's knees buckled underneath him. Their daughter had been found dead. Sandy was inconsolable blaming herself for the accident. Chuck reassured her, and they began the process of grieving together. But their healing was cut short when Terry Hoffman, the leader of a cult Sandy belonged to, stepped into the hospital room. At the sight of her, Sandy suddenly stopped weeping. Her eyes glazed over. It was like she had disconnected from reality. She shrugged Chuck's embrace away, in a cold voice that seemed to come from someone else. Sandy told him that Devereaux was happier in heaven. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a podcast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. Last week, we followed Terry Hoffman as she went from high school dropout to leading New Age Mystic. Her Dallas, Texas-based organization, the conscious development of body, mind, and soul targeted affluent residents and their wallets. This week, we'll follow Terry and her devotees into the 1980s, as her teachings of conscious development took a dark turn. After several people associated with Terry suffered mysterious deaths, her organization faced accusations of brainwashing, theft, and murder. As 1977 dawned, 
39-year-old Terry Hoffman was on top of the world. Her small study group had flourished into a force to be reckoned with. Her supposed abilities to see into the world's past, predict the future, and travel to other realms gained her a loyal following of nearly 100 people. But the good times quickly ground to a halt. That same year, shortly after their divorce, Terry's second husband, Glenn Cooley, committed suicide. In response, she announced that the invisible enemy of conscious development, the Black Lords, were stronger than ever. She implied that these evil entities were trying to kill her followers, and Glenn Cooley was their first victim. Despite making a show of grief in front of her devotees, Terry moved on quickly following Glenn's death. Just five months after he passed, she married another one of her followers, Ben Johnson. The two set about building a life together with the help of Glenn's worldly possessions, all of which he'd left to Terry. To distract from her sudden new romance, Terry again played on her followers' fear. She told Conscious Development members that the Black Lords had begun infecting their blood. Bloodletting rituals had to be performed on anyone she deemed tainted. Otherwise, they would die. As the group tried to digest Terry's words, her second-in-command, Sandy Cleaver, emerged brandishing needles and syringes. The horrified followers listened as their leader called out those who needed to have their blood drawn. Some of those she named consented to the bloodletting, while a few walked out in protest. But even those that stayed began to question Terry's powers. After all, she hadn't been able to save her own husband from the clutches of the Black Lords. She couldn't be the godlike figure she claimed to be. Terry did her best to respond to the criticisms, but for the first time, her powers of persuasion failed her. By mid-1978, her follower count had dwindled from 100 to a couple dozen. However, those that stayed were the ones who were the most devoted to her unique dogma, a mishmash of metaphysical and Eastern philosophies. No matter what she did, they were determined to stand by her side. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. As strange as it sounds, the die-hard followers who endured Terry's ludicrous demands may have actually been addicted to the organization. A 2017 study conducted in France found similarities between addictive disorders and cult commitment. Researchers concluded that active involvement in a cultic group could lead to an emotional dependence on the cult leader or on the group, which explains why people stay despite threats to their physical and psychological integrity. The group's devotion to Terry was rooted in the sense of belonging she provided. To hold on to that validation, they were willing to jeopardize their own well-being by participating in the bloodletting rituals. Perhaps no member was more addicted than Sandy Cleaver, Terry's right-hand woman. In fact, she became even more invested in conscious development after the mass exodus of devotees. Terry took advantage of Sandy's vulnerability and attempted to isolate her from the outside world to gain total control over her. To do that, Terry targeted the only thing Sandy loved outside of conscious development, her teenage daughter, Devereaux. 
Terry told Sandy that Devereaux had an evil energy inside of her. She advised Sandy to stay away from her. Meanwhile, Terry consolidated her control over her remaining followers by continuing to present herself as a heroic martyr. She claimed that she was single-handedly warding off the Black Lords to protect her flock. According to her, the mental effort caused her constant physical pain. Conveniently, the only remedy was very expensive jewelry. Apparently, only precious stones could replenish her energy. To relieve Terry's suffering, Sandy loaned her a piece from her private jewelry collection, a necklace set with multiple diamonds. Sandy believed it had the power to cure her friend. Sometime later, Terry returned the piece to Sandy, claiming the diamonds were worthless. When Sandy took another look at the necklace, she saw that the stones had been swapped out for cheap duplicates. Sandy sued the jeweler who sold it to her. The idea that Terry might have switched the stones to make a quick buck never crossed her mind. No matter how far Terry went in her deceptions, Sandy continued to take the guru at her word. In August of 1978, she drafted a new will, leaving everything she owned to Terry. If Sandy died, Terry suddenly stood to inherit her massive home, antique collection, rare John James Audubon paintings, and a yearly stipend of $20,000. There was no mention of Sandy's only daughter, Devereaux, in her last testament, which made it all the more surprising when the 13-year-old made a will of her own just a few days later. In the handwritten document, Devereaux bequeathed her $125,000 trust fund, worth a half a million dollars today, to conscious development. Two members of the group signed as witnesses, and a third notarized it. Devereaux's sudden devotion to Terry Hoffman was baffling. She had never been a fan of conscious development, once describing the group as weird to her friends. The only explanation seemed to be that Devereaux hoped the document would help her reconnect with her mother. If that was her goal, she got what she wanted. During the winter of 1978, the relationship between Sandy and her daughter improved. To the teen's delight, Sandy became affectionate and attentive. For months, Sandy had refused to attend any of Devereaux's basketball games. Now, all of a sudden, she asked the girl to go on vacation with her, Devereaux was over the moon. But Chuck Cleaver, Sandy's ex-husband, was suspicious. He pointed out that Sandy's change of heart coincided with Devereaux's upcoming 14th birthday. As part of the divorce agreement, she would legally be allowed to choose which parent to live with. Chuck believed Sandy was trying to keep him and his daughter apart. In February of 1979, Devereaux accompanied Sandy and her fiancé, Lynn Fairchild, on their pre-wedding honeymoon to Hawaii. On the afternoon of February 25th, Sandy, Lynn, and Devereaux drove 20 miles from their Honolulu hotel to a lagoon on Wailupe Peninsula. After a short trek, the trio arrived at a shallow, rocky beach. Sandy and her daughter ventured out into the water on an inflatable raft while Lynn stayed behind to sunbathe. Devereaux and Sandy paddled their tiny craft through the waves and into the nearby lagoon. As they talked together, the raft drifted further and further from the shore. All of a sudden, the surf grew violent and thrashed the small raft over a jagged coral reef. 
Unable to turn back, all the mother and daughter could do was clasp hands while the waves crashed over them. After a few moments, the tide became so fierce that it flipped the raft over. Both Sandy and Devereaux were thrust into the turbulent waters. Sandy made it to the surface, but couldn't see Devereaux anywhere. She attempted to dive down in search of her daughter, but a breaker threw her atop the reef and briefly knocked her out. When she came to, she yelled for help. Lynn heard his fiance scream from shore and called the fire department, who rescued a badly beaten Sandy. But Devereaux was nowhere to be found. Coming up, authorities desperately search for Devereaux. Now back to the story. By 1979, 41-year-old cult leader Terry Hoffman had lost the majority of her followers she'd recruited to her organization, Conscious Development. Though she only had a fraction of her original devotees, she was intent on keeping those who remained close to her. In February, Terry's most committed acolyte, Sandy Cleaver, went on a vacation to Hawaii along with her 14-year-old daughter, Devereaux. During the trip, Sandy and Devereaux were in a rafting accident. Sandy was hospitalized while rescuers searched for her missing daughter along the Honolulu coast. Unfortunately, the teenager was found dead hours later. Sandy's ex-husband, Chuck Cleaver, arrived at the hospital to find Sandy a wreck. But as soon as Terry Hoffman entered the room, Sandy's grief suddenly evaporated. Chuck was bewildered by how quickly Sandy seemed to get over the death of her daughter and accused Terry of brainwashing her. His accusations seemed to be confirmed when, shortly after, members of Conscious Development told him that his daughter had left behind a will. They brazenly requested the $125,000 Devereaux had supposedly left to Terry. Chuck was speechless, but more than that, he was terrified. He now suspected that Terry had somehow tricked Sandy into killing Devereaux for her trust fund. It's impossible to know whether Sandy intended to harm their daughter in Hawaii, but if she did, it's more likely that she was motivated by a twisted form of altruism rather than a desire for violence. Psychiatrist Philip J. Resnick identified the typical reasons that drive mothers to kill their children. He found that altruism was a common motive, writing, in a misguided belief that she is doing her children a favor, a mother may kill to save them from any real or imagined threat. Terry had led Sandy to believe that Devereaux was possessed by a malevolent spirit. If Sandy did have a hand in her daughter's death, she might have believed she was saving Devereaux from the evil inside her. But Sandy failed to recognize what Chuck saw as the truly evil presence in her life, Terry Hoffman. Luckily, Texas didn't allow for minors to have wills, so Devereaux's document was ultimately declared invalid. Terry had likely been depending on Devereaux's cash and had to scramble to find another source of income. In April 1979, Sandy purchased a life insurance policy worth $300,000. And, no surprise, it was all payable to Terry. Just a few months later, one of Terry's sons, Kenneth, died after falling off of a building at a construction site. He left his mother his life insurance benefits and savings. 
That made Kenneth the third person in two years to suddenly die and leave Terry an overwhelming portion of what they owned. While some outsiders, like Chuck Cleaver, were suspicious of Terry, most members of Conscious Development wrote the deaths off as a string of unfortunate coincidences. Their diehard belief in Terry's goodness enabled her to do whatever she pleased. She could use her followers like tools, getting rid of them without any regard for human consequences. In July 1980, 42-year-old Terry sent out a newsletter to her members, announcing that she had divorced her husband, Ben Johnson. She remarried almost immediately to another follower named Don Hoffman. Don was her fourth husband and the third devotee she married. He left his previous wife, one of Terry's closest friends, to be with the cult leader. That didn't matter to Terry. For her, friendship seems to have only been a means to an end. She was willing to go to any lengths to get what she wanted. Her continued torment of Sandy Cleaver made that clear. Terry pressured the woman at every opportunity, insisting that only conscious development held the key to her spiritual salvation. After years of indoctrination, Sandy was willing to sacrifice anything for Terry. She proved it in June of 1981, when she wrote yet another will, again leaving everything she owned to Terry. That same day, Louise Watson, Sandy's elderly housekeeper, also drafted a will. Though she wasn't a member of conscious development at the time, Louise inexplicably named Sandy and Terry as executors of her modest savings. Three months later, Sandy and Louise left for a conscious development retreat in Colorado Springs. Usually, when she traveled, Sandy left her keys with the neighbors so they could feed her cat. This time, she changed the locks before leaving. A few hours later, she and Louise made it to Colorado Springs. The next morning, September 9, 1981, Sandy asked Louise to take a drive with her. She wanted to see a nearby plot of land where conscious development might open a retreat. Given that she'd apparently been feeling unwell leading up to the trip, it's possible that Louise didn't want to go on the drive and risk car sickness in the mountains. But whether she wanted to or not, Louise got into the car. It was a fatal mistake. The next day, on September 10th, an Air Force paramedic spotted Sandy's wrecked car at the base of a 450-foot cliff. At first, it looked like an accident, but on closer review, the police noticed there were no skid marks on the road. It seemed as though Sandy had driven straight off the cliff without even trying to stop. Kroon Beatty, Sandy's brother, was convinced that his sister had been coerced into dying by suicide. On November 10, 1981, he took 43-year-old Terry to court to contest Sandy's will. Beattie hired criminal prosecutor Jim Barklow to take on Terry. Barklow argued that Sandy's will was invalid because she lacked free will and independent thought under Terry's influence. Terry's testimony only bolstered his accusations. During the trial, she freely admitted to giving her followers tranquilizers. She also let it slip that the money Sandy had left her, which had been earmarked in the will to build a conscious development school, was sitting in her own personal bank account. There was no indication Terry actually intended to use the money for a school. 
In her defense, Terry called her followers to the stand to share how she changed their lives for the better. Conscious Development members assured the jury that the organization was simply a New Age study group and not a cult. But Barklow found witnesses who had experienced a much darker side of Terry. Joyce Tepley, a former member of the Guru's inner circle, spoke about her time with Conscious Development. She claimed that Terry would have taken her life and property if she had stayed in the group any longer. Despite those testifying in her favor, the chances of Terry winning the case seemed slim. So, five days after the trial began, the 44-year-old decided to settle out of court. She agreed to split Sandy's trust and life insurance money equally with Beatty. Privately, Terry was rattled by the trial and felt publicly humiliated. When D Magazine published a story about the proceedings in December of 1982, titled The Rise and Fall of a North Dallas Cult, she shrunk from the negative press. She stopped leading conscious development meetings and cut off contact with her loyal circle of followers. But as long as there was money to be made, Terry couldn't stay out of the limelight for long. A couple of years later, after the scandal had died down, she reemerged. She revived her operations in Dallas and resumed her correspondence courses. She also developed a satellite group of her organization in Chicago. Along with her husband, Don Hoffman, she relaunched her spiritual counseling services and jewelry sales. By 1985, 47-year-old Terry was ready to promote a new and improved version of conscious development. The group now boasted its own perfume line and peddled acupressure massage therapy meant to unblock the body's energy. Terry also dubbed herself a financial advisor, counseling her followers about business decisions and career changes. She sought to rebrand herself as a sort of all-around life coach, focusing on practical advice and distancing herself from her controversial past as a mystic. The strategy worked. Conscious Development 2.0 quickly attracted new members. Any of Terry's former followers who rejoined the group were rewarded with senior status. Robin Otstadt, who had been with Conscious Development for over 10 years, stepped in to replace Sandy as Terry's second in command. Robin was responsible for authoring the correspondence courses that proved so effective in Chicago. Once Robin had attracted a solid foundation of eager acolytes, Terry took the wheel to keep them invested. It soon became apparent that, though Terry had changed the look of her organization, she was still up to her old tricks. She isolated members, encouraging her followers to limit their interactions with people outside the group. In her lectures, she claimed that families prevented individuals from reaching their full potential and were insidious and deceitful. Robin took Terry's words to heart more than anyone, and even distanced herself from her only son. The more she let Terry in, the more Terry corrupted Robin's mind. She even convinced Robin that her soulmate was an invisible CIA agent named George. In 1986, Robin filled a journal with details about the dates she supposedly went on with George. She claimed to share dinners, intimate conversations, and long walks with him. As ridiculous as it seemed, 41-year-old Robin actually believed she was dating an invisible man, and she had never been happier. Unfortunately, Robin's joy didn't last. In April of 1987, her health began to fail. 
In a call with her ex-husband, Robin said she believed that the Black Lords had infected her with fatal hepatitis. Robin feared her days were numbered, but was determined to not give the Black Lords the satisfaction of defeating her. On April 21, 1987, she died by suicide. She left a note behind in which she apologized to Terry for an argument they had recently had. She didn't spare a single word for her son. Her family was even more brokenhearted after medical examiners performed an autopsy and found no trace of any fatal disease in her body. Meanwhile, Terry, the woman that had falsely convinced Robin she was dying, inherited her land, jewelry, and personal belongings. Terry seemed unstoppable, but her brazen manipulations were finally attracting the attention of authorities. Coming up, the government seeks to topple Terry Hoffman. Now back to the story. Between 1977 and 1987, five people associated with cult leader Terry Hoffman met their untimely demise. In each case, the 49-year-old mystic inherited their savings and property. Many outside her organization, Conscious Development, believed Terry bore some responsibility for those deaths. But her followers were quick to leap to their leader's aid. In Terry's defense, one of her devotees said, if she's guilty of anything, it may have been getting in over her head with counseling really disturbed people. They reasoned that Terry tried to treat people with depression and other personal demons and simply couldn't save them all. But as the months wore on, they were forced to reckon with more and more suspicious deaths. By the end of 1987, the Conscious Development Curse spread from its headquarters in Dallas to a satellite group in Chicago. Though the Chicago chapter wasn't as large as its Texan counterpart, there were still plenty of diehard believers who were willing to do anything for their leader. One such believer was Mary Levinson. Within months of joining the group, Mary was fully committed to the cause. She paid to attend pricey retreats to spend one-on-one -on -one time with Terry Hoffman. Mary was desperate to prove her devotion. Conscious development consumed every aspect of Mary's life. She believed anything that Terry told her, including that death was just a gateway to ascendance. She was willing to do anything to take the next step in her spiritual journey. On November 30th, 1987, Mary took a fatal overdose of pills. Only days earlier, she had received a $125,000 divorce settlement. In the letter she left behind, Mary wrote that she left the money to an undisclosed nonprofit. Only her lawyer knew the recipient, but the will asked that its name not be released. Conscious Development had registered as a nonprofit in Chicago that same year, but Terry denied receiving any of the money. Mary had made her contribution untraceable, so there's no way of knowing for sure where it went. Though based on the timing of the events and Terry's historic tactics, we can make a strong assumption. But the issue was quickly swept under the rug when only days after Mary's death, the Chicago branch suffered yet another loss. Charles Southern, a college professor, went missing in December of 1987. He had previously suffered a mental breakdown after becoming involved in Terry's group, and his family feared he was suicidal. 
That month, Charles told his relatives he planned to take a trip to India. After weeks went by without any word from him, his family went to his home to investigate. When they found his passport on his desk, they realized he had never even left. They also discovered a strong sedative among his belongings. Even more unsettling was the hat and folded coat Charles had left atop a stool. It was a Nigerian symbol of death. It seemed Charles had left behind a dark message. Despite years of searching, Charles was never found. Eventually, he was presumed dead. All of his money was left to Terry Hoffman. Terry used the cash to keep her organization thriving back in Dallas. She wasted no time replacing the senior level followers she lost by promoting new members. In 1988, 50-year-old Terry made longtime followers David and Glenda Goodman her closest confidants. The wealthy couple stepped into the shoes of the late Sandy Cleaver and Robin Odstadt as committed organizers and financial supporters. Terry was especially proud of recruiting the Goodmans, as their membership gave Conscious Development some much-needed credibility. David was a Yale PhD and a business professor at the local university. When he met Terry in the 1970s, he'd been itching to leave academia and branch out on his own. Under her guidance, David quit his tenured position to become a financial advisor. Shortly after, he devised a computerized formula meant to choose stocks and became a minor sensation in the finance world. David credited his success to Terry's ability to read minds and forecast the stock market. He believed anything she told him, no matter how outlandish it sounded. According to the Goodman's shared journal, Terry even convinced the couple that they were the reincarnation of Adam and Eve. Because they were the original sinners, they had lived thousands of lives paying their karmic debt. Their journal also mentioned intense meditation sessions with Terry. They wrote that she provided them with mysterious white pills that enabled them to talk to God. During these talks, the Goodmans were required to show their devotion to their leader by presenting her with earthly gifts. The Goodmans accordingly showered Terry with huge donations and luxury cars as a sign of gratitude. They firmly believed Terry shouldered the suffering of thousands, including that of her own husband, Don Hoffman, who she claimed was sick. Sometime in 1988, Terry told Don that she had consulted with her spirit guides and discovered that the Black Lords had given him inoperable cancer. Though doctors couldn't find any trace of the disease, Don believed his wife unquestioningly. In September 1988, he checked into a hotel and made a recording for his children. In the video, Don claimed that he was terminal and wanted to take his own life before the disease ravaged him. He asked his kids to support Terry and not to grieve for too long since death was just a transition from one life to another. After shutting off the camera, Don took a lethal cocktail of painkillers and MDMA. By the time a housekeeper found his body, it was cold to the touch. As they had with Robin Ottstadt, medical examiners performed an autopsy on Don's body. Once again, they found no signs of disease. Despite their findings, 
Terry insisted that Don did have cancer and that the Black Lords had expertly hidden the telltale signs. Don's children found their stepmother's claims absurd. After Terry inherited the entirety of their father's estate, they took legal action. The same attorney who had forced Terry to settle after Sandy Cleaver's death, James Barclow, represented them. Unfortunately, the Hoffman's case failed to ever get off the ground. But during Barclow's discovery process, the attorney searched through Terry's garbage and uncovered some interesting circumstantial evidence. Inside a trash bin, he found empty bottles and receipts that suggested Terry had purchased amphetamines. These may have been the mysterious white pills she provided her followers during meditation sessions. If so, it would explain the intense devotion she inspired in her followers. A 1962 experiment tested the link between stimulants and religion. The study gave two groups of students either a mood-altering drug, psilocybin, or a non-hallucinogenic substance prior to a church service. According to an Atlantic article on the subject, following the service, nearly the entire group receiving psilocybin reported having had a profound religious experience compared to just a few in the control group. Though different from hallucinogens, stimulants, drugs that produce increased activity in the central nervous system, such as the amphetamines found in Terry's possession, could leave users more susceptible to spiritual experiences. As a result, they can be a tool of indoctrination. But the pills could only do so much. By the fall of 1988, Glenda and David Goodman had become frustrated with conscious development. They felt their spiritual journey had stalled, and the pills were no longer having the desired effect. They had invested years and over $100,000 to reach Terry's level of spiritual ascendance. All they wanted was to be able to travel between the physical and spiritual worlds like she claimed to do. When the Goodmans shared their struggles with Terry, the mystic was quick to lay blame at the feet of their families. She believed their relatives were an earthly tether, keeping them from visiting other realms. At that point, the Goodmans were willing to try anything. In the name of enlightenment, they cut off communication with their children and their parents. Then, in September 1989, they received sudden instructions from God. The day they had been waiting for had finally arrived. October 20th was the date their physical and spiritual selves would ascend. They believed they would travel into an astral plane. Terry told them a crystal palace awaited them there. It took five weeks before anyone discovered what the Goodmans had done to attain enlightenment. In late November 1989, the rotten stench emanating from their house alerted the neighbors. When firefighters broke into the home, they found the Goodmans decomposing bodies. They had shot themselves. Although they left no formal will, their journal stated that they were considering giving a house to Terry. The deaths of such a high-profile couple left her embroiled in legal trouble once again. In early 1990, the Dallas District Attorney's Office investigated the alarming number of deaths associated with 52-year-old Terry. Soon, more civil suits were filed by the families of conscious development members who had died. Ultimately, investigators couldn't find any concrete evidence that Terry used mind control to drive her followers to kill themselves. 
For a while, she seemed untouchable. But though she didn't suffer legal consequences, the bad press surrounding the probe ruined Conscious Development's reputation. In October of 1991, Terry filed for bankruptcy. She blamed the media, but her accusers saw the filing as a ploy to distract from her pending lawsuits. Investigators also suspected Terry wasn't being completely honest about the dire nature of her financials. Then, they discovered that she hadn't reported all her assets. She had failed to list a contract related to film and book rights on her life story, and the sale of several expensive paintings inherited from Sandy Cleaver. Terry was charged with bankruptcy fraud. Her lawyer argued that Terry had failed to accurately report her finances because she was under extreme mental stress. But the court wasn't convinced. On November 23, 1993, 55-year-old Terry Hoffman was convicted on 10 counts of fraud. The following year, she was sentenced to 16 months in prison, where she remained until May 1995. After her release, Terry faded from public consciousness. She remarried again and changed her name to Terry Lilia Keenly. But her penchant for New Age mysticism never totally disappeared. In 2005, the 67-year-old quietly re-emerged with her own website. She called herself a cloud artist and sold angel photographs that offered a glimpse into a realm only she could see. Ultimately, her final attempt to rebrand herself failed to overshadow her legacy as a disgraced spiritualist. Terry died in October 2015 at the age of 77 in relative obscurity. But to those who lost relatives to conscious development, Terry's passing was more than just an odd newspaper headline. It was a painful reminder of the suffering they believed Terry had caused, crimes she would have to pay for in her next life. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Edlin Ortiz, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm -hmm.